Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 9. Stasis in the Middle East and India. Imagine that there had been an intergalactic traveller whizzing through our solar system a thousand years ago. What do you suppose they might have made of our blue planet as they caught a glimpse of it far below? Humans, they might have observed, were well established and with the exception of a few places like New Zealand, had spread across pretty much every habitable corner of the planet. But overwhelmingly, they might have noticed, humans lived in Asia. It's estimated that in 1000 AD, about 7 out of every 10 people lived in Asia. If our space visitor took a bit more trouble to understand what these earthlings down below were up to, they might have noticed that most human economic activity also happened in Asia. Over in East Asia, China showed the most precocious signs of development. But so too did one or two societies in Southern and Western Asia. However much our space explorer might have looked elsewhere, there would have been very few signs of more than what you might just call rudimentary progress. Rome by then was a forgotten memory. Had our extraterrestrial traveller gazed at Northern Europe, they would have seen little more than thick forests, a few peasant hovels and the occasional church or castle. Much of Africa, Oceania and the Americas would have seemed pretty empty of people. There just weren't that many folk living there. It was what was happening in China and after that, India and the Middle East, that would have caught any outside observer's attention. Early Islam's capacity for wealth creation was pretty considerable. Carved out of the wreckage of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, the Abbasid overlords extended their rule quite dramatically. And as they did so, their rule conferred on the conquered territories many of the conditions needed to induce intensive economic growth. The Middle East achieved a brief period of intensive economic growth and innovation, and the Arabs under the early Abbasids grew rich through production, not plunder. In everything from mathematics and map-making to medicine and mill technology, the Muslim world led the way. By AD 1000, Abbasid Baghdad was one of the richest places on earth. Per capita GDP reached 650 US dollars a year in today's money, which was substantially above the measly 427 US dollars a year in Europe at the time. The Abbasid Empire formed what was, in effect, a giant single market. Within it, there was something of an agricultural revolution between AD 700 and AD 1100 with big advances in irrigation and the adoption of new crops such as sugar, rice and cotton. Early Islam encouraged enterprise and free markets. While European rulers and pontiffs in the early Middle Ages were in the business of decreeing what constituted a fair price, Muhammad, himself once a merchant, had declared prices to be in the hands of God. It's no coincidence that many of the words we use today when we talk about trade, tariff, Check, carrot, are Arab in origin. Under the early Abbasids, 
The Middle East enjoyed a new monetary regime and a legal system that allowed trade centers, charitable trusts, and an Arab version of the later Venetian Commenda contract, which allowed capital to be invested in trading ventures with limited liability. In fact, the historian of early Islam, Benedict Kohler, argues that it was the other way round. The commander was really a Venetian version, he suggests, of the Arab Kirad contract. The Venetians, he shows, got their ideas for the commander contracts from the Arabs. Capitalism in northern Italy, he goes on to suggest, or rather the institutional arrangements and legal ideas that made it possible, did not arise in a vacuum. These ideas, he suggests, rather like the new system of what we mistakenly sometimes refer to as Arabic numerals, that was slowly taking hold in Europe, came via the Muslim world. It's certainly the case that the Arab Kirad contract and the Venetian commander contracts were, like the Roman system of bottomary loans before them, a strikingly similar answer to the problem of how to ensure capital could be invested, risks managed, and liabilities limited. Whether each approach arose independently of one another, or whether the Venetians were emulating the Arabs with whom they traded in the East, the more important point, surely, is that such arrangements, be it bottomary loans, the Kirad contract or the Commander contract, could have only arisen in a society where the rights of the productive were relatively secure. These conditions, so favourable to the productive interest, didn't last. From the 10th and 11th centuries on, the elite within the Arab world started to extort. Perhaps the first big change came when the Abbasids stopped using a land tax to generate revenue, which meant that liabilities were relatively immune from any arbitrary system of collection. Instead, they moved to a system of tax farming, auctioning the right to collect taxes. This encouraged tax collectors to extract whatever wealth they could from a province as quickly as they could, with little regard to future output. From there, the Abbasid elite moved on to doing what the Roman elite had resorted to, the straightforward expropriation of property. The Abbasid empire became just another extortion racket. Innovation stopped, per capita output fell. Egypt, under the successor regime of the Ayyubids, moved from tax farming to feudalism, with military service expected in place of set taxes. This suggests that farmers were not producing much of a surplus that could be extorted at all, and so they were paying instead with direct service. After 1171, trade became overtly protectionist. In 1258, Baghdad was sacked by a Mongol army. Her libraries were burnt, much of her population killed, and she was left as little more than a ruin. This calamity marked the end of a golden age for Baghdad. But for all the riches that the Abbasid elite had accumulated, the per capita income of the Abbasid empire on the eve of Baghdad's destruction was back to the level it had been two and a half centuries before. Decline had arrived long before the Mughal army turned up, like Rome almost a millennium before the barbarian hordes fought to carve up a corpse. If in the 10th century the world's leading scientists might have written in Arabic, 
They did little thereafter to enhance technology in the Muslim world. The Muslim world began to regress to an almost European level of backwardness. By 1429, the Mamluk regime in Egypt, which maintained power through a slave army, was debasing the currency and banning exports of certain commodities altogether. For all the promise in the early days of Islam, for most of the Middle Ages it was parasitism that actually prevailed. Ottoman Turks, a nomadic tribe that emerged out of Central Asia in the 7th and 8th centuries, the Turks converted to Islam along the way. In 1071, they achieved a great victory over Byzantium in the Battle of Manzikert, marking the moment when they started to overwhelm what was left of the Eastern Roman Empire. It took them almost 400 years to finish the job, but eventually, in 1453, they captured Constantinople. From there, they began to overrun the Venetian Empire in the Eastern Mediterranean, then Syria and Egypt. They went on to conquer most of the Middle East, ruling a domain that stretched from Mesopotamia to Hungary. By the time of Suleiman I, this Ottoman Empire had around 14 million subjects and was perhaps the most formidable military machine on the planet. But the Ottoman Empire was a plunder machine, better at accumulating wealth than at generating it. It was fueled, rather like a supernova star, by sucking in material from outside to keep it going. And like a supernova, once it had run out of external fuel, it started to eat itself. Overstretched by the 16th century, the Ottoman armies could no longer conquer others. So the elite soldiers, the Janissaries, plundered their own domains with ever greater intensity. From 1556, a succession of sultans ruled the empire with more interest in enjoying the proceeds of plunder than in much else. To keep tax revenues flowing, taxes were imposed on trade and goods and property were confiscated. Tax farmers were unleashed to prey upon peasants, scouring the land for any sign of a surplus that they could extract. Taxes became so extortionate that Ottoman rule actually began to depopulate large swathes of territory. It's estimated that during the reign of the 16th century Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, the 50 highest ranking Ottoman officials received 15% of total expenditure. These are some of the most extreme instances of wealth inequality anywhere in human history. And it certainly wasn't a surfeit of capital that was, or capitalism that was to blame. About the only road open to personal enrichment within the Ottoman Empire by the 16th century lay in purchasing a public post and using it to extort. Trade depended on concessions granted by the authorities. Exports were prohibited and imports permitted only if they served the interests of the elite. So concerned were the rulers to maintain their hold that they tried to keep outside influences at bay, going as far as to ban the printing press entirely. By 1600, output and incomes per capita in those parts of the Middle East ruled by the Ottomans were below what they had been under Roman rule a millennium and a half earlier. India. Historians often like to attribute underdevelopment in certain societies to some sort of outside agency. For some Chinese historians, it was the arrival of foreigners, the Qing, 
which accounted for China's backwardness from the 17th century. If this so-called Qing conquest theory is used to explain Chinese underdevelopment, something similar, call it British conquest theory, is used by some to explain India's underdevelopment. According to this school of thought, India in the 18th century, just like China before it, was poised to take off until a group of outsiders from England, rather than Manchuria, turned up, plunging the country backwards. Perhaps India was poised to take off before the British arrived, but the trouble with blaming India's underdevelopment on the British is that they were just the latest in a long succession of invaders. Before the British came by sea, Persians and Parthians and Mughals and Tamerlane and even Arabs, Greeks and Scythians had come by land over the mountains from Afghanistan. For much of her history, India has been ruled by a succession of outside parasites. At about the same time that the Ottomans were extending their grip into Europe, another Muslim army invaded India. Baba, the king of Kabul, established Mughal rule in India from 1526. While his hold was shaky to start with, Mughal rule was consolidated by his grandson, Akbar, who extended the Mughal Empire further south. The Mughal elite, rather like the Ottomans, ruled over a mass of mainly Hindu farmers. Like the Ottomans, they lived off the proceeds of taxes and tolls and had little involvement in any kind of productive activity. Surrounded by slaves, servants and splendour, they luxuriated in water gardens, milking rural India for what they could extract. Lesser nobles were subject to 100% death duties. Their estates became the personal property of the emperor on their death. Jagir estates were a form of feudal land grant gifted to the emperor to his underlings. Yet they remained the personal property of the emperor. They could be taken away from his cronies and gifted to someone else at any time. This, of course, encouraged whoever happened to be in possession of them at any one time to make the most of them and extract whatever they could from the peasant farmers they found there as quickly as they were able to. The effect of this was catastrophic in terms of inhibiting agricultural output. According to the French physician Francois Bernier, who lived in the court of 17th century Mughal Emperor Agran Grazeb, property rights were so insecure that nominal landowners wouldn't be bothered to so much as clear a ditch or repair a house for fear that they would be confiscated. Like the Romans, the Mughals debased the coinage as a means of extortion. Trade monopolies were awarded in return for bribes. At the time of Emperor Akbar's death in 1605, three quarters of the land tax, approximately two thirds of total revenue, went to the army. And that was long after Akbar had stopped waging external wars. The emperor and his top 122 officials received about one-eighth of national product. That is to say, 0.0006% of households took 12.5% of total wealth. There was almost no innovation in northern India under the Mughals. Indeed, it was not until the 19th century that Gutenberg's idea of a printing press came to India. The colossal mass of ordinary Indians existed in a state of crushing poverty. Parasitism-induced sclerosis. 
Per capita output remained unchanged for a century and a half after Akbar, before falling further in the late 18th century. However vast India was in terms of population and output that the peasantry produced, for much of her history she never rose above subsistence output. This wasn't just due to the various external elites that ruled over. The parasitic system that kept India underdeveloped was not due simply to outsiders. It was internalised as a caste system and deeply embedded within Indian society itself. Based on Hindu scripture, India's caste system has ordered society across the subcontinent for much of recorded history. The caste system made membership of guilds hereditary. Only those born to produce and sell certain things could do so. As was so often the case, traders and merchants, the Vaisa, were pretty close to the bottom of the pecking order. And it was this caste system, with hereditary positions and rigid labour rules, as much as any external overlords, that helped hinder India's development. Like Europe, India in the Middle Ages consisted of a mosaic of competing kingdoms and empires. The fortunes of the rulers and their ruling dynasties might have waxed and waned, but society across much of India was hierarchical and divided into these sharply defined castes. Perhaps one of the reasons why invaders had found it possible to subjugate India in the first place was the existence of this Hindu hierarchy. When the Mughal overran India, they grafted themselves on as a new ruling elite. The British did something rather similar. In both instances, the caste system that underpinned Indian society remained largely unchanged. However much the Mughals or the East India Company might have extorted India, India had her own homegrown parasitic system. India was locked in a Malthusian trap of her own making long before either the British or the Mughal arrived. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.